You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Again, good morning. Uh, we are continuing our study through Exodus, and uh, I'm going to try to do something that I've no, not mastered in four years, uh, and that is try to preach a brief sermon today, since we are uh, behind schedule. So I apologize for your brunch plans, because we're not going to do there. All right, uh, so we're in the study of Exodus, and um, we uh, really today just are blown away by God's goodness uh, to this church this morning, uh, just how he continues to bless us and keep us and Uh, Like we said in our prayer earlier, we don't know what the next four years holds, but what we do know is he has been so faithful to us in the past, and we can uh, trust in his good character that he will continue to remain faithful to his church in the future. Now, as we uh, begin this morning, today we are doing part two of uh, uh, last week, which was Exodus 19. We talked about how God is forming this new community, this new people, and today we're going to see the ratification of that covenant, of that relationship here in Exodus 24. Now, um, recently I saw a popular sh- new show on Netflix. Now, I say recently, I saw it pop up because Netflix you know, always pops up their new shows, and it was enticing uh, to me. It was a reality dating show, um, <laughs> so not called King's Crushes, but um, <laughs> that was a year last night, you got that one. Uh, and it's not The Bachelor either, guys, okay? Um, this show is called Love is Blind. Anyone have, okay, don't, don't say you've seen it. I, don't, I really don't want to know. Just tell me you haven't seen it, okay? <laughs> I mean, who could resist a show with Nick Lachey as the host, right? I mean, just come on. Uh, but the concept of the show is actually kind of intriguing to me. Because essentially, uh, just to kind of spare you uh, your brain power and brain cells, okay, from watching the show, uh, it essentially puts people in dating scenarios where they have to get to know one another without actually seeing the person. So they have this wall in front of them, and they talk to one another, and they're trying to make what they call an emotional connection, not a physical one. And so they go through this dating process where they make these connections with people, and then at the end of that, they have to choose whether they want to propose to the person without ever seeing them. Like, what could go wrong, right? Like, this sounds like a great plan. And so they do that. They propose to the person, they talk about how much they love each other, and then they finally see each other face to face. And it's always interesting to see where that goes after that, right? And they have like three weeks or something like that. I could be way off on timing here. They have like three weeks or something to decide whether or not they actually want to follow through on their commitment to marry this individual that they just saw for the first time. And so what happens is it gets to the final and they're at their wedding ceremony. And just like everybody dreams of their wedding ceremony, right? Like, I don't know if the person's going to say yes. I don't even know if they love me or like me, but you know, whatever. So they get there on the altar and and they're sweating intensely and like, you know, the music you ter- typically have for a wedding is very nice and cordial, but it's like the theme music of Gladiator in the background. Like, it's this really intense moment. Like, are they going to say yes? Do they actually love each other? And then they get to the altar and they look at each other and they have the, the in that moment, uh, they have all the power in the world to just, just decide whether they want to stick true to their commitment or not. In that moment, they could say, well, I really actually didn't love you like I said. I really didn't want to follow through on this commitment when I said I would propose to you even though I never saw you and only knew you for like two days. Right? They have all the power in the world to deny that. And as you can tell in reality shows, that's actually what happens. Most of them don't actually follow through with getting married. Now, the reason I use this illustration today is because I believe it's a microcosm, really, of how our society views relationship and commitment. It really is something that at the end of it, we can just choose whether or not we actually want to stay true to our word. If we want to stay true to our feelings, if we want to stay true to what we know is truth. 
And in this moment in our text today, what we see is God does something completely contrary to the way we operate in this world. God has every right in this ceremony of our text today to leave his people at the altar. They have been unfaithful, ungrateful. They will continue to be disobedient. But in this moment, we see the character of God on display, that he remains true to his people. He remains committed to his people. He has an unconditional love for them. And at this altar, he will not leave them. And in fact, what we see in our text today is that he provides the ultimate means for us to have a deep and lasting, intimate relationship with him. And so our main idea today is going to flow right from the text. Last week we talked as God is forming this new community. He's he's creating us. He's freeing us to form us into this new community that would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Today we're going to see that he frees us and then invites us into relationship with him. He's not just forming us as a people, but he is inviting us as a people to be in covenantal relationship with him, in a relationship that is more than we could ever deserve or imagine. And so in our text today, we're going to see three aspects of this relationship flowing straight from the text. We're going to see the book of the covenant first. We're going to look at the blood of the covenant. And then finally, we'll look at the blessing of the covenant. And so as we enter the text today to look at the book of the covenant first, let's just give a little recap of where we are in this book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We've been trekking through it now for several weeks. And as we said last week, Exodus 19 is a transition moment in the book of Exodus. You can actually divide the Exodus basically into two episodes. You have the episode one, which is God's deliverance of his people. And then episode two is teaching them and showing them how they'll dwell with God in the wilderness, particularly on Mount Sinai. We saw that they were captive in Egypt, and then now they have been uh, given rescue to the wilderness where they're meeting with God and they're learning what it looks like to be in covenant with God, in relationship with God. And so here today we're seeing the culmination of that covenant the ratification of this covenant. As he comes to them on Mount Sinai, he tells them in Exodus 19, as we said last week, that, that he is the one who has delivered them from the Egyptians. He has bore them up on eagles' wings. And he tells them, if you obey my word, if you, if you keep my commandment, you will be my treasure possession in all the earth. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then he expounds upon his word in Exodus 20 through 23, as we talked about last week. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them this legal code to live by that would showcase that they were different, that they were distinct from the the nations around them, that they would reflect the character of their God, the one who has freed them. And today we get to the end of this passage when Moses is up on the mountain and the covenant is being confirmed. And let's read, picking up in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so if you're following the narrative, Exodus 24 actually picks up in Exodus 20. Because at the end of Exodus 20, after God audibly speaks the 10 commandments, these 10 words to his people, they are 
fearful, right? As one should be when you hear the audible voice of the Lord coming out of a mountain with thunder. And in this moment, they're fearful. So what they, they do is they request at the end of Exodus 20, they say, hey, we don't want to hear directly from God anymore. Like, can you just speak to Moses and allow Moses then to tell us what you told us? And so God, God grants them requests. And so Moses goes up. It says he goes up into the midst of the cloud, into the darkness, and he's up on the mountain. And that's where we pick up here at Exodus 24. He's been up on the mountain receiving this word, and he comes down, and he tells the people of God this word from God. He tells them this book of the covenant. Now, let's get a few definitions out here so we, we understand what we're talking about. When we say the word covenant, because I've said that word a lot now, uh, that word covenant just means very simply an agreement between two people that then brings them into a special relationship. Uh, one of the most prime examples of this that we alluded to in the opening illustration here is marriage. Marriage is a covenant where two people, a man and a woman, come together in agreement. They make certain promises to each other, and in that they, they come to a special relationship with one another. But covenants are used in everyday life as well right? When you lease your apartment or your studio or your closet, uh, whatever you live in in DC, right? When you, when you lease that, you are entering into a covenant with the landlord, right? You are agreeing to certain things, certain obligations, certain terms, certain promises, certain commitments that you sign on the dotted line. And there's now an agreement between two parties. That is a unique relationship that you have. This is a covenant. So what then is the book of the covenant then? Well, the book of the covenant is what we've studied the past week and now this week as well. It's the Ten Commandments which teach us the character of God, the very nature of who he is. And then expounded upon those Ten Commandments in Exodus 21 through 23 are these legal codes that he gives the nation of Israel. And in those codes, he's expounding upon his character and how that influences everyday life for the people of Israel. And collectively, Moses writes these things down, and this is this book of the covenant. It is God's word. It is his revelation to us of himself. And today, the book of the covenant is the Bible. It is what God has given us to reveal who he is, his character, his nature, how we can know him. The significance of the book of the covenant is it's the basis of how we enter a covenant. You can't enter a covenant, an agreement, if you don't have knowledge of what you're entering into, Right? And the book of the covenant, the reason it starts here is because this is the basis, the foundation of God's commitment, his relationship with his people. They are to know their God. And so in his kindness, in his wisdom, he reveals himself to them. He reveals who he is, and he reveals what his commands, his wise commands would be for his people. Now, this was not uncommon in kind of the Near East uh, culture. There were uh, covenants that kings would establish all the time with people. When a king would conquer a people, he would then establish a covenant. He would establish an agreement, and there's always certain components to this agreement. There would be a preamble to start the agreement. And in the preamble, the king would claim his victory. He would claim who he is, and then he would also claim what he has done for those people. And then following the preamble, he would then outline what are the obligations, what are the laws, what, what are the regulations, what are the things that he's calling the people to commit to. And then he would follow that with a series of blessings or curses, right? He would say, if you, pro if you live up to these things, then you'll receive blessings from me as your king. Or if you don't, there will be curses to follow. And what we see in Exodus 20 through 23 is actually something very similar. If you recall last week, you talked about before God ever utters a word of the Ten Commandments, what does he establish? He establishes who he is and what he has done for his people. 
right? The preamble is right there at the beginning of Exodus 20, where he says, I am the Lord, the one who has brought you out of Egypt, who has rescued you from slavery. I am the one who brought the 10 plagues upon Egypt. I am the one who, who parted the Red Sea with a mighty hand. I have led you out. I have freed you. This is what I have done for you. And then he follows that with his calling on the people, his calling on their lives to respond in faith and follow him. And we said last week that the overarching theme of this is found in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That what God is calling his people to is to treasure him, is to love him, is to be committed to him as the God who has freed them. And then he continues with the rest of the commandments and the legal code to follow. And all this is pointing to the fact that God's people are to be distinct, that they are to reflect the character of their God. At the end of this, in Exodus 23, and even referencing back to Exodus 19, he shows them the blessing. And if you obey my voice, if you keep my commandment, you're going to be my treasured people. You're going you're to receive the land I have promised you. And you will be in my presence. You will get to enjoy my presence. And here he's calling them to seal this covenant by committing to it. Now, this is very similar to what we find in the New Testament when we follow Jesus. Jesus comes, he reveals himself to us, he shows us what he has done, he's healed the sick, he's cast out demons, he's raised the dead, he goes to the cross on our behalf, and in that moment, he defeats death itself, he's resurrected from the grave, and as the conquering king, he comes to us, he says, follow me. And when you follow me, there's blessing. When you follow me, there's forgiveness of sins. When you believe in me, there's eternal life, enjoyment of my presence. Now, there's something very interesting about God calling his people into covenant. And that is the one thing that's different about God's covenant than any other covenant in this world is that if your landlord puts something in an agreement that you don't like, you can make an amendment to it, right? <laughs> or at least a try, right? If you don't want to enter an agreement with someone, you can always just say, I'll just take a better offer. But when you come to a conquering king, you don't come to the conquering king and think of the amendments that you can make. You don't come to the one who has split the Red Sea and say, mm, let's make a deal, right? You don't come to Jesus Christ, the one who triumphed over death, and say, that was great, but can I propose a few things that we can amend in the Bible, please? We don't come to the one who has defeated death and has come to us in his grace and revealed himself and say, mm, I think I want to make some changes to this agreement. We come to that person with humility, because there is no other king. There is no other conquering king who has graciously revealed himself to us like God. And he comes and he says, this is how you will know me. Receive this book of the covenant. And what do they do? They say, we will obey it all. <laughs> and we think, well, that's not a great response because <laughs> we know the rest of the story. You guys should have been more honest with yourself, more truthful. You should have said, well, I'll obey some of the time, right? Or I'll obey most of the time, God. This is great, but I'll, I'll, I'll obey 50% uh, uh, of the time, right? But they said, no, we will, we will commit to this. We will obey everything. But the story doesn't stop there. 
we see the blood of the covenant. Moses says as he comes down with all these words from the Lord, he says he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. So now he comes down, he shares the book of the covenant with the people and now he's offering these offerings to the Lord. And in verse six, it says, and Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And what did they say? Again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so what does Moses do? He took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, that sounds pretty weird, right? Like they just, they just pledged their allegiance. They said, we will do everything. We will obey it. And Moses was like, all right, let me get my squirt gun out. And it just starts like, you know, hitting him with blood, right? It's just, like, this sounds weird, right? Like why would he use blood? Why would he immediately spray them with this sticky, sulling, unclean blood? Why is he doing this? Well, again, there's two aspects to this, right? When, when Moses takes the blood of the sacrifice, he sprinkles some on the altar and then he sprinkles some on the people. And the reason why he's sprinkling it on the people is this is how you would seal an oath. It was a blood oath, right? They didn't, they didn't have paper where you'd sign on the dotted line. You, you would seal it with, with something that would actually showcase the significance of it. And so why is he taking the blood and throwing it on the people? Well, they are taking a serious oath here. They are essentially saying in this moment, we will be obedient and we understand the consequences of not being obedient. And the consequences of not being obedient is that we become like the animals that were just sacrificed. You see, what they would do is they would take the animal and they would actually split it in half and the people would walk through the animals and the blood would be sprinkled on them. And in doing so, they're saying, if we do not uphold our end of the deal, if we do not keep our side of the covenant, we will become like these animals. Right, serious. Even as a kid, right, when you're when you're a kid and you want to make something serious, you you take a really serious oath, right? Maybe you understand this phrase, right? When you want to really, really commit to something, you say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my who teaches kids that, right? Like that is like that's such a dark, twisted thing, right? But there's something very serious, weighty about that, right? And there's weightiness here. That the sprinkling of the blood on these people is not just uh, to showcase that uh, there's a seriousness to their sin. It's to showcase that there's penalty for their sin. That if they don't uphold their end of the deal, then there is something that needs to happen. A punishment has to fit the crime. Justice has to be served. And as we read that, we think, well, gosh, we know that, that they're going to be covenant breakers because we're all covenant breakers. Like, we all fall short of that. And the shedding of blood is the only thing that can pay for the penalty of that. The punishment has to fit the crime. The reason why the blood is sprinkled here is also to showcase the seriousness of our sin. Right? At the end of the day, sin is not just doing bad things. Bad things are sin, but sin is much deeper than that. Sin at its core is saying, I don't want God around me. I don't want God in my life. Sin is an attitude that says, I want to live in an alternate universe, an alternate reality where God is not present. It is exactly what we see Adam and Eve in the beginning. They want to be like God, and in being like God, what they are suggesting is they want to be their own wisdom. They want to live on their own, work on their own, have relationship on their own. 
Sometimes sin is even twisted where it's like, well, maybe I do want God, but I want God on my terms. I want a God that I can domesticate. Sin drives us to a place where we actually desire, believe it or not, separation from God. This blood, it represents the ugliness of their sin. It also represents the fact that there's a penalty for their sin, but it's not just put on the people. And this is the good news. That he takes the other half of the basin of blood and he sprinkles it on the altar. And what God is doing in this moment, why Moses is doing this, when he sprinkles the blood on the altar, what he is saying is that although you will be covenant breakers, I will offer forgiveness on the sacrifice of another. You see that? The blood is to remind them of the seriousness of their sin. The blood is to remind them that there's penalty, there's justice for their sin. But the blood sprinkled on the altar is a reminder that someone else, something else will die in our place. That is grace. You see, every other king in the Near Eastern culture, there is no covenant like this. There is no parallels in any other religion like this. Kings did not know grace. Kings only knew punishment for justice. But the king of Israel, God himself, is a God of grace. And in sprinkling the blood on the altar, he is saying that there is a sacrifice that he will receive in our place. Which is why centuries later, Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, and each week we read this from the book of Matthew 26, he says something incredibly profound to a group of people who knew the book of Exodus very well. He looks at his brothers around the table and he lifts up the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What is he saying? He's saying that when he goes to the cross, when Jesus sheds his blood, he will receive the curse of the covenant so that we could receive the blessing. When he goes to the cross and sheds his blood, the one who fully obeyed God, the, one, the only one who could fully say, I will do everything that you ask of me, Lord. He deserved the blessing, but he sheds his blood in our place so that we receive the blessing of the covenant. He is the sacrifice in our place, which means that the way we enter a relationship with God is by grace. And the way we stay in relationship with God is by grace. Which means if we understand the blood of the covenant, we can better understand the book of the covenant. Because we don't have to fear not living up to God's word. We don't have to fear God's word imprinting itself on our lives and forming us into a new community. We don't have to fear looking into God's word and allowing it to expose the deepest things within us that we need help with. We don't have to fear using God's word as a people to mold us into a people that would flourish in God's goodness and his kindness and his commandments and his word. We don't have to be afraid because we're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're not going to live up. But thanks be to God that he looks at another who died in our place and he offers grace to us. The blood of the covenant signifies that we serve a God of grace. Because Jesus has taken the curse of the covenant, we can come near to God, which is the blessing 
of the covenant. Let's continue in verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What a scene. They get to go up on the mountain, the 70 elders, Aaron, his sons, and Moses, and they see God. They see a glimpse of the glory of God. They see the God who is in the fiery cloud. And it says, as they behold God under his feet, there's something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But what is so extraordinary about this is that the word says God did not raise his hand against them. That's the reason why Moses had to include that. Because if, if someone were to see, the Bible says, if someone were to see the glory of God, what would happen? They would surely die. And here Moses says that they went and they saw God, and he did not raise his hand against them. But instead, what they received was the presence of God. They ate and drank and beheld God. This is the blessing of the covenant. That through the book, the book of the covenant, we can know God. Through the blood of the covenant, we can enter into relationship with God. And the blessing of the covenant is we have fellowship with God. There's intimacy here. There's friendship here. The two things real quick about the blessing of God's presence as we come to our close. The first thing here is that the blessing of God's presence takes place in community. Do you notice that here? That, that takes place in community. And as we reflect on the last four years, we see that, right? The last four years of this church, we see that this is a people, a community. Fellowshiping with God is not something to be privatized. It's not just for the spiritual elite. When Jesus comes, he makes it a way for all people to have fellowship with him. Yeah. All people enter into his presence and can come to him. To have true fellowship with God is to have true fellowship with other people. That's why in this setting, they're eating a meal together. They're having fellowship with one another. Our fellowship with God is personal, but it's not individual. It's corporate. You really can't have fellowship with God if you don't have fellowship with his people because God's plan of redemption has been to rescue a people and to bring a people into relationship with him. So you don't have to live this life as a lone ranger. You can have fellowship with God in the fellowship of the community of God's people. But notice, too, that the blessing of God's presence doesn't just take place in community. It takes place in celebration. There's a better way to celebrate than a good meal, right? They eat and drink with God. This is the pinnacle of a blessing. There's so much intimacy here that they would dine with the king. The eating and the drinking is, is evidence of their friendship with God. He's their friend, of their intimacy with him, of their fellowship with him. We don't know what they ate and drank, but we can assume they're not brown bagging it here, right? Like, this is probably a really good meal. <laughs> they're enjoying the presence with God. But you know what? This meal was just a foretaste. This meal was just a foretaste of another meal that would one day happen on a mountain. A, a meal that Isaiah envisioned in Isaiah 25. Listen to these words. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This mountain is an anticipation of another mountain. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. The mountain at the end of days where the Lord will come and he will prepare a feast for his people. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the best wines. You think D.C.'s got a food scene. This has nothing. (laughs) There is no Michelin star restaurant that can hold a candlestick to what is pictured here. A meal so transcendent that our senses can't even comprehend at this moment. And he says that this mill, what will he do? He will destroy the covering that unfolds on all people. He will swallow up death forever. It's a promise that the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear from all faces. A promise that in our hardest moments in life, that we have a banquet to look forward to a banquet that Jesus himself would allude to back in Matthew 26 at the Lord's Supper, which we're about to partake together. And he says that as he says, this is the blood of, my, uh, of the covenant, he then says that he will not drink of the vine until he drinks of it anew in his Father's kingdom. What is he referring to? This moment, where there is a feast prepared for us, his people, and what is great is not necessarily the food there, not necessarily the wine there. What is ultimate is the unhindered presence of the Lord with us. The blessing of the covenant is that we get to enter relationship with the God of this world. The king of this world wants to have fellowship with his people. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of this. That Jesus invites us to this table today. He invites us to come with all of our problems to the table. He invites us to come as covenant breakers to the table and to receive forgiveness because of the sacrifice of another. And as we take this meal, I pray that the image in your head would be that of Isaiah. That as we look back on what Jesus has done for us, we know the promise is true, that he will swallow up death forever, and he will intimately wipe away the tears from all of our faces, and everything that is sad in this world will come untrue because of the life and death and resurrection of the unconquering King Jesus. This is the good news we celebrate when we come to the table each and every week, that we can know God, that we can have intimacy with God, that we can receive forgiveness from God. So come to the table. Let him feed you today. Let him fold you into his arms. Let him show you joy. Let him give you joy today. Let's come up to the fiery mountain of Zion. Let's come through the clouds today. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.